This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 72. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host to the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Brandon Turner. What's up, Brandon? What's up, Josh? Hey, what's your middle name? My middle name? Yeah. Yeah, it's NFB, buddy. <laughs> All right, fine. Don't tell me what your middle name is. I None of y'all. Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. I got you. I got you. How's okay. it going? I'm good. I'm good. You know, just... Uh, just getting ready for the show, the big show. We got a lot going on on bigger pockets, and and that actually does lead me to today's quick, quick tip. tip. All right, so today's quick tip is this: we have been busting our backsides on a redesign of bigger pockets for a good six plus months, and uh, this thing is amazing, and uh, we're really really excited about it. So. Really, the tip is to keep your ears and eyes peeled for the launch of the new and improved bigger pockets. I'm I'm very pleased with it. Uh, I don't know about you, Brandon, but uh, I think I, it's going to help like people a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be awesome. I mean, most of the things are the same. You'll notice a lot of things are the same, but a lot of things are different. Pretty much everything that's was not cool before is now cool. That's my my thinking, and everything that was cool is the same. So there you go. Yeah. Well, well played, my friend. Well played. All right. So uh, today we've got uh, we got a show with Mark Ainley. Mark's the owner and operator of a real estate brokerage and property management firm serving the greater Chicago area. Uh, Mark has uh, built a fairly sizable team. Uh, they manage and own lots of properties around town up there in in the uh, south side of Chicago. And uh, Mark's got a lot of great tips to help us out in terms of property management uh, and and doing deals himself. He's he's personally done, I believe, somewhere between 150 and 175 deals, uh, consisting of everything from SFRs to multifamilies to condos, you name it. So definitely check it out. There's lots to learn, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy uh, really quickly. Show notes can be found at biggerpockets.com slash show 72. And uh, otherwise, uh, you know, sit back and, and enjoy the show. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. 
First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars, with a B, in taxes with 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, you can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and they specialize in all types of exchanges, delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, Bigger Pockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash BP. That's my1031pros.com slash BP to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention Bigger Pockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. Cool. Let's do it. Let's bring them in. All right, Mark, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here. Great, great. And uh, good quality mic there. That's always nice when the guest has a good good quality mic. Good job. I had a good uh, referral source for it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, cool. Well, uh, glad to have you here. Um, why don't we uh, get to this? We want to talk about your whole story because you've got kind of a fascinating story. Uh, so let's start at the very beginning. How did you get bit by the real estate bug? Um. Well, I wanted to, uh, when I was younger, I always wanted to be, you know, just associated with, with Wall Street or money. I, I kind of always be a stockbroker. Yep. But growing up in the late 90s, we, you know, that kind of went online and kind of did away without your, with uh, your traditional uh, stockbroker um, occupation for the most part. Um, so then I kind of thought the next big, glamorous, uh, fascinating industry was kind of real estate. And, and that kind of went away for a while. And I, I thought about being a teacher and everything a boy wants to be a firefighter policeman and all that stuff but um i ended up uh buying when i just coincidentally accidentally because the market was right it wasn't because i was really excited about real estate but i bought my first place from uh, i bought it for my dad uh he was actually getting uh, married and he wanted he didn't want to rent to me because he felt me as a liability being 21 living in his place so he actually sold me his place nice nice awesome and he way to, uh, way to see there's a sense of trust there yeah. <laughs> he come visit. Uh, that's other stories. But uh, <laughs> so I owned my first place. My mortgage, taxes, insurance, association fee, I was paying like 950 bucks. And my friends were, you know, still living at home, you know, getting in trouble, not doing good in school, not working. And they get kicked out of the house. So they would come and they would stay with me. I charge <laughs> them five, 600 bucks. And at one point I had two buddies there and I was actually making more then, then uh, my, my payments, by the time they threw in for groceries and everything like that, I'm like, wow, if I wasn't even living here, I could rent to a third person and I could be up <laughs> five, 600 bucks a month. That's funny. I, so, I, was, I actually did that when I was in college. I, I rented an apartment and it had four bedrooms. So I rented three of the bedrooms out to other guys. And I was like, this is long before I got into real estate. I mean, like, well, not long before. And I was like, wow, this is great. If I rented out my, my own room, I could live for free. So I rented my own bedroom out and I slept on the floor in the living room for, an, I don't know, six months or something like that. So yeah, that was, uh, that's how serious? I, yeah, totally serious. That's how I like, that's when I first like realized that I could like sacrifice to, to, to live for free. And anyway, yeah, that's my very, very early real estate wow. story. Then a year later I bought my first house and that's when I actually started. Anyway, 
Not about nice. me. Mark, back to you. So you got this house you were hacking. I, I call that house hacking, uh, where, you, <laughs> where you buy a house, yeah, live for free because your buddies pay for it. So, uh, yeah. So how did how did that go? Well, I, I was, uh, it was good. I was 21, 22 years old. I was working at a, I was going to school, but I was also working at a trucking company. And I had, uh, it was a 24 hour place where I, I worked a shift. It was four on, four off, and I worked overnight. So I had, I had four days off in a row and I had all day. And at that age, you know, I, I, um, for me, I guess I didn't sleep much. So I had plenty of time to kind of like figure out life. And, you know, I was into reading, you know, back then it was all the Donald Trump books and then uh, Art of the Deal and just they didn't have it, real estate books like they do now, uh, but uh, just reading whatever and trying to gain knowledge on it. And at the place I was working at, I met my current partner um, that uh, is with me with GCA and all my investment properties. And we started, you know, we were, you know, we're just kind of venturing, trying to be entrepreneurs. We looked at ice cream trucks, we looked at vending machines, you know, we sold purses, like the, the, whatever, whatever we did nice. to make a dollar. We, we kind of were always uh, uh, trying to look for something. And, uh, you know, this was really when 2002, three, somewhere in there, right when things really started kind of going crazy. And one day I was sitting at my buddy's house. Uh, he lived in an apartment building and uh, under the door slid uh, a notice saying, we're turning this place into condos. If you want to buy this place, you'll you'll get it for ten thousand dollars cheaper um, than uh, what we're going to end up marketing for. Hmm. And it, it kind of hit me. I said, "All right, well, you know, worst case scenario, you know, back then I wasn't counting, you know, closing costs or or, or you know, realtor fees or anything like that. I'm just thinking, I'm ten thousand dollars up if I buy this thing right now. So I, we, me and my current partner, we ended up buying that place that my buddy lived in, and he stayed on there as a renter. Shortly after that, he moved out for whatever reason. And we end up renting. This is probably our first nightmare uh, uh, rental <laughs> situation. But going back, take one more step back. The day of that closing, when I closed on that condo, this was before I had my real estate license. My best friend who actually, at the time, actually founded GC Realty, my uh, real estate and property management company, he was working for a real estate company um, in the neighborhood. And like I said, I was around during the day. He'd come over, work from his laptop then. And he said, Mark, get your real estate license. Now, before that day, he, be, he tried telling me this like 25 other times. But that day, it made sense. He said, Mark, if you would have had your real estate license today, you would have he, figured it out on the calculator. And he said, you would have had this money. It ended up being like $3,200. And that $3,200, I'm like, oh, that would have covered this. That would have covered that. That would have covered this. <laughs> so right away, it hit me. After all the times he told me, it hit me. I said, all right. I started doing the home study like the next day. Shortly after that, you know, about three months later, while I'm still studying for that test, I did the home study. It took me a little longer than I, than I wanted to. But he said, Mark, I'm thinking about starting a company. You want to come on board? I said, sure, I'm in. Let's do it. So we started GC Realty Development in late 2003. Nice. Very simple, working out of his basement. Nothing, uh, nothing glamorous. So it was just you, you and this buddy. Now, did you end up actually buying that condo or... or? Yes, that was the day. The day we closed, I brought home the HUD and all that stuff. And he, he said, man, you could have got a commission on this deal, man. Uh, I gotcha. That, that was the whole lightning bolt that day. And I, I spent that, that $3,200 commission I would have got in my head like fast. Then I realized I don't have that $3,200. Would you recommend uh, new people start getting into the business the way you did? Or do you think that maybe you want to learn a little bit more before you get in and start house hacking, as, as Brandon likes to call it? It definitely uh, reduces your risk. So it's always a good option to explore um, with limited risk, yes. Cool. Got it. Yeah. Ex- except, of course, if your friends are deadbeats. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, how did that go? I want to know that. Did I mean, like, did that work out well renting to your friends, or whatever happened to that house that you that you lived in? Well, it worked out good because the the cool thing is I didn't have to go through eviction court to kick him out. I just said, yeah, get out. I'm done. <laughs> so I, I would go through I go through three months where I take the extra money, then three months I kick him out, and, and so it was nice to have those <laughs> options. Because they're your friends, you can just shut the door on them. 
Yeah, there's no five days. <laughs> I, I guess. All right. So how did you go from there? I mean, you, you got the condo. You got your license at that point. How did you get from that? I mean, what did you do next? I, I know you did some flipping in there somewhere, right? Yes. Well, that first uh, condo we we bought, um, the the conversion, we, um, you know, my buddy moved out. We moved a new tenant in and it was the worst tenant ever. Um, so I, I had right off the bat my horrible, I didn't do any too much screening. I, I didn't, I, you know, I went for, fell for a sad story and <laughs> it was a horrible tenant and it, and we ended up paying her to leave before cash for keys are popular. We, we did it ourselves, uh, in that sense, um, just to get rid of her. Let's actually, and, let's talk about that real quick. Those people who are listening, I don't think we've covered it too deeply in the podcast. What is cash for keys and, yeah. and why did that work for you? Good question. Well, cash for keys is basically the substitute to going through the legal eviction process. Um, you know, in a, as an example, if a tenant's not paying today, I can either hand them a five day and start the legal process. Um, or I can say, I'll give you $500 if you're out by Sunday and you turn over keys to me. Okay. And uh, they use that money to move on. Um, I get possession back quicker and can start moving on. Yeah. I, yeah I've done, I've done now. Uh, five, I've had like five or six really bad tenants, like really bad that should have been evictions. And four of them, four or five of them then were, uh, we did cash for keys. Only one did I ever actually take the court and I'm on my second right now. Uh, the rest have all been cash for keys. So I'm a big fan of it. It's, it hurts the pride a lot. Did it I, work for me? Yeah. Yeah. It worked every, I mean, it worked every time they, they left, they, they left it fairly clean cause they wanted that money and yeah. they were gone. But yeah, the, yeah, the one lady that we did anyway, she refused to even answer the phone or the email or whatever. So we had to evict her. And now the second lady is the same way. But uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of cash for keys. But like I said, it does hurt the pride to. So I'm curious for, for both of you guys. I've actually never done cash for keys. Brandon, were you doing 500 bucks? And Mark, that was, it sounds like that was your number. Yeah. You know, for that particular situation, yes. Um, here in, in Cook County, where Chicago is located, the judicial system screwed up in the sense of uh, everything takes forever and everything costs money. And, and uh, I mean, to evict someone in Chicago, it, I mean, it could take anywhere from, uh, I mean, it can max out at six, seven months sometimes. You sure. hear some horror oh, stories. Sure. And to give a guy a couple thousand bucks to, to eliminate that, I mean, it's, it's uh, and you can usually see now that uh, I have the experience, I can see that tenant that's going to take six or seven months and yeah. it will work the system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in my case, I think, I think the highest we ever paid was like six hundred. The lowest was I think two hundred bucks. Like the la- the last guy was just yeah he he was a he was a tweaker. Like we found out that he was like got into drugs really bad while he was there. He needed some money for drugs, so I offered him two hundred bucks to be out by Friday, and he was out by Friday, and I gave him two hundred dollars cash. My lawyer nice. actually told me that he said he said nice. he said dude show up at the guy's door with a pile of cash, get it all in tens, and then show up and just wave it in front of him and say this is yours on Friday if you're out. He said because. When you're on drugs, like you see how that pile of cash, that's all you think about for the whole week. And it it worked. So Yeah, remind me next time that you ask <laughs> if I want to invest in a property in Monte Casino that uh There you know, there are druggies know, everywhere. This is a nice house too, but yeah, this yeah. guy got like went down the rabbit hole of of drugs. So Yikes. And now do you feel bad about the fact that you're I giving gave. drugs to a to a tweaker <laughs> in, instead of you know giving him a home? Now you're giving him cash. I'm gonna let Mark I'm gonna let Mark answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no comment, Mark. No comment. Let's let's move on. So all right. So that first one went really bad. You did the cash for keys. What happened next? We said we're never going to rent to anybody again. Let's go flip houses. That's okay. exactly what that conversation. Nice. Um, and now, did you stay true to that, by the way? Well, for a very short time. Okay. For, till, till the market crashed, pretty much. Okay. Um, so how'd the flipping so, go? Like, what, what was that like? Well, again, it was with my, uh, my current partner I have now. And he uh, is more of a mechanically inclined uh, partner, and, and, and I'm not. 
And I, I'm good with Excel spreadsheets and he's bad. All he knows is Yahoo email and that's about it. So, um, <laughs> we have a really good partnership in that sense. So it made sense in, in, and it still makes sense. Our partnership is our strengths and weaknesses. So we started, we bought a couple houses. Um, and on those houses, I was actually in there doing the work, taking down the old pool, filling it in, painting, doing everything I could because, uh, we were just trying to, uh, maximize our profits at that point. Nice. Um, so we then, uh, you know, we did, did do a couple flips successfully. We got stuck with one or two that, uh, turned into just rentals and that's how we kind of involuntarily became landlords again at that point. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, well, let's talk about those first flips. What, what was it like, you know, becoming a house flipper? What, what could you have done differently? What did you do right? What'd you do wrong? That kind of stuff. Well, the good, the market was on the up. So that was the best thing we had going for us where no matter what we bought, no matter what we did to the place, we could sell it for more six months later. So that, that was, uh, the, the good thing. It was just timing and didn't see it at that point, but in hindsight, I, I could say that, but the, you know, it really cutting costs down and controlling and being at the project every day, you know, to, uh, do a flip, it really takes you to be on the property every single day. Um, at that point it wasn't hard to find buyers and it wasn't hard getting qualified for mortgages. So it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't like flipping is today. And I actually, we looked into doing flipping, uh, last year and we kind of faded away and we're actually working on one now currently, but it's a whole different ball game than it was 2004. That's very true. That's very true. You, you mean you just can't uh, put a sign up that you're flipping the house and have a buyer five minutes later who has uh, you know one percent uh, money down and not even close to qualifying for the mortgage? And all you did is paint the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there you go. All right, all right, right on. So, so you started flipping. You got, some of them turned into rentals. Is that when you got back into the rental game, like what made you stop flipping? Was that the market crash? Well, the market started going up and there was less opportunity to, um, less opportunities to buy those. Um, there wasn't, uh, you know, anything that went on the market, you had 25 people at, and they're, you're getting rooted out by, you're getting thrown out of the, the process by cash buyers right there and then. Um, but at the same time, we also started working on, uh, the brokerage side of things, which EC Realty. And when I first got my license, I really went around to these, these condo conversions, um, and they're happening everywhere. And, uh, I would go into them and I would sell 10 or 15 of them in, uh, in a week or two's time to various people I know, because those people are just coming in and get hundred percent financing. And, uh, I, I was really looking, we were growing the, the brokerage side of things at that point. Um, so I kind of faded away because on our flips, we there wasn't much margins. There was uh, you're walking away with 20 grand with a heck of a lot of risk. And then more so we got caught with a couple that, uh, you know, end up just renting. Um, so we just ran, weren't as liquid anymore. Hey, hey, Mark, similar to the, that first deal where you bought the condo, you were working with the builders and you were, uh, you were the agent on, on the sell side for, for the conversions. Is that what it was? Correct. Correct. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So t- let's talk about that for just a second, because it was actually something that I wanted to do back in the day when I was an agent. I, I always thought about uh, getting in with these developers and, and you know, if, if you get the contract, you, you got the whole property, right? Well, we didn't represent the, the, we weren't representing the builder. We were simply, uh, I just have a pool of investors or, uh, people that I knew that, uh, were looking again in real estate that, uh, I would bring to the table and they would buy these condos. Uh, and these condo conversions were sold at, sold and selling out in a matter of, uh, a couple of weeks just because everything was going so fast at that point. Gotcha. Well, can you clarify on that? So you've got a pool of investors that you're bringing to the table. I, I don't quite understand what you're doing. So I, I mean, are you just, 
Are you buying a, a property? I was just really acting solely as an agent at that time um, from as for my company, GC Realty, and we were uh, representing investors in buying the condo conversions. So you were just the buyer's agent on that, yeah. Yes, and the important thing of that is that's how our property manager started. I was sitting at the closing table. We sold a condo to my, our attorney who at the closing table was like, Mark, how much would you uh, charge me to manage this? I'm like, I don't know. You know how much do you pay me? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'll give you 50 bucks a month. I said, all right. He's like, all right, I'll drop the, the management contract and uh, send it over tomorrow. And we still, that was, that's how GC Property Manager was born right there at the closing table that day. That's funny. That's interesting. I, I actually still, uh, I used to do like 50 bucks a month. I had some friends that wanted you know, help with the rentals. and like, well, how much would it be to do two hours of maintenance every month? And I'm like, and then just answer phone calls. I'm like, yeah, I don't know, 50 bucks. To this day, I still answer their phone calls for 50 bucks a month on that property. <laughs> it's been like nine years since I did that for the first Why? time, or seven years. Because I, I don't know, I don't want to call and tell them, like, hey, I'm not going to take care of this anymore. And so I just still answer the phone calls every once in a while. When, and I'm like, I probably put in, I don't do the maintenance anymore, but I probably put in an hour a, a month of work. That's like 50 bucks an hour. So I just keep it up. But I need to probably quit that pretty soon. That, that particular client, we still do charge 50 bucks and we still use the same management agreement he gave us. So we got, uh, it was a value add scenario. <laughs> nice, wow. nice, nice. I guess there's something to the legacy agreements, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. All right. Nice. So that, that's how you got into property management. So you went from flipping to mainly agent stuff to uh, rental properties and stuff. So why don't we actually move to that and talk about your rental property investing? Like, how, do, how did you get back into, because you bought a lot of properties in the next, you know, after the crash, right? I, I read that online. You read a lot of, Bought a lot of properties. Yes, yes. Uh, so um, how did how did that happen? How did that transition happen from? And an and I'm curious. And I'm curious about how you actually bought the properties. I mean, were you financing them, or you know, were you doing them? Um, you know, what? How were you acquiring these? Well, I'll take a long story and, and trim it up. So we, when we got into property management, we started managing properties for a particular client that you know, we managed three properties for him and we got to know him and he was really about buying properties. So he was buying properties. We were actually doing the, the work on them and we were selling it for him. So we were getting paid three ways. We we're getting the buy side, we we're getting a general contracting fee and we we're selling them. We we're selling them to people we knew because we knew that they're good properties. With that relation, that same client, so we were kind of building a relationship with them. That same client I took to an auction one day in May 2008. It was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, we left that auction that day, and he bought three properties for $70,000. 70 each or 70 total? 70 total. Wow. For the three properties? Okay. Yes. And this, yeah. is, this is Chicago? Or where were, were these? This is south side of Chicago, these properties. Oh, so, south side Chicago. Gotcha. So he, he <laughs> That's walked, like Detroit for those people who don't know Chicago. Oh, there's a lot of good areas. There's a lot of good areas. All but, right. Uh, so so $70,000. So that afternoon, um, I was kind of like, what'd you just buy here? And he's like, and he said, well, we're going down that way right now. You want to come check one of them out? So this is my first experience on the south side that day. It was hot. It was a Sunday afternoon. People everywhere. It was my first experience down there. So it was uh, an eye opener for what uh, the reality of life is down there. But we go into um, this first property. One of the, He bought a condo for 24000 And we walk in the building. The whole building's empty. The other four condos are empty. The, uh, you know, we walk into the unit, there's a sheriff sign on the, on the unit door and we walk in the unit, everything's stripped out, everything. Um, <laughs> and I'm feeling horrible as his real estate agent. I'm like, Oh, I should have helped him. I should have looked into this more for him. I shouldn't have let him buy it. And he goes, this is great. See if the other ones in the building are, are available. I'm like, <laughs> what? So he, he broke it down for me. He's like, I'll put X amount of dollars into it. I'll rent it for this much. We'll, this is what it costs to, to, we'll manage it, blah, blah, blah. And I went home that night, threw together a spreadsheet, and I realized, I said, man, based on those numbers, this is like a 25 or 26 uh, 
cash on cash return for that. That's what he said. Yep. So I went back to him the next a couple of days later and with my my partner and said, um, you know, we should start let's kind of put some money together and let's buy these mass quantity because there's no way these won't at least double in value um, based on it just can't go any it can't go any lower than that. And at that time, the Olympics were coming. Or were, that was right in the neighborhood of the proposed Olympics. So um, if the Olympics came, that, that could have been a, a humongous uh, thing as well, too. Ultimately, it never came. But uh, it actually, Olympics not coming helped better for the South Side because for us, for the investors, because prices went down a little lower even. But wait, that's, hold, wait a second. So prices couldn't have gotten any lower, and yet they went lower, right? Yeah, they still okay. went a little lower. Okay, so I, I, I just want to call you out <laughs> on that because for everybody listening you know, I, I think it's this is a really, really important point. Don't ever assume it can't go lower B- because, you know, it really, really can. And even when everything looks like it's going to line up for you, uh, you got to be cautious about these things. I mean, I think uh, you probably ended up OK in the end. But, but uh, you know, the risk is always there. There's never zero risk that it's going to turn uh, and, and go, the, go against you. Yeah, but we're talking about four or five thousand dollars lower, which is really 10, 15 percent still. So it uh, well, it's lower though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And for you who bought it at you know probably the right price, somebody else who may have chased it, uh, that four or five thousand dollars could it could have been a problem, you know. And if you're stacking notes and you're, you know, you're leveraging yourself, you you could find yourself in trouble. Yes, uh, but the income on them are pretty significant, so that that really offset any sort of risk in that element. So I gotcha, yeah. I gotcha. Well, again, I just you know, I, I, we've got you know twenty five thousand people listening to the show, and and I don't want people going ahead and buying property who don't know what they're doing, assuming that the property is never going to go down. I mean, yes, income is great, but if you're buying it for uh, appreciation in any way, shape, or form, you know, think twice about that because you know there's there's always a chance it could go the other way. So, Mark, how did you then? I mean, decide you bought these things for, you know, cash flow, right? You're not assuming appreciation, is that correct? Correct. For those people who don't know, what is the difference, and why do you choose one over another? Well, appreciation is really a, a guessing game, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, and cash flow is really a specific return that you, you're going after. Um, and up until in Chicago, more particular, just there was no such thing as cash flow before the market crashed. So that really introduced cash flow to me when the market crashed. Yeah. Um, how many deals did you buy during this time then? In between 2008 and 2000 and 2013, we collected 135 units we did. Nice. One third, and were they all like single family houses or were they you know, condos? Our largest building was 18 and then we had some, our smallest was a condo or a single family. So we had everything in between a few six flats um, and so forth. Okay. So can you, uh, what kind of, what do these deals look like? I mean, what were you buying them typically for? Uh, what kind of, you know, cap rate or maybe ROI? Like what were you looking for? What was your like standard for a good property? We were trying to keep our cost between purchase and, and fix up between 40 and 45,000. That was always kind of the goal. Okay. And what are they, um, what are those rent for? We were getting anywhere between 1100 and 1300. Ooh, that's great. That's, that's awesome. really, really nice. And it's so, all section eight housing for the most part. Okay. okay. So these are all low. I'm assuming these are all low income section eight housing, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. And what kind of condition were they? I mean, were they all, did they all need rehab? Did you have to rehab them all or, or how did they, I like, condition wise look? There were various, some were, were 75 years old, never been cleaned up. And those are the, those were the worst, uh, uh, cleanups, but the ones that remodeled 20 years ago and just the electric and the plumbing, all that was stripped out. Those were the easier ones that, uh, to put back together. Okay. Okay, cool. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of the idea of finding things that need a little bit of work, fixing them up a little bit, then renting them out. I know it's kind of a hybrid between flipping and renting, but I'm a huge fan of that. So let's go, I guess, let's talk about a little bit more about those properties. So you're buying them, they cash flow incredibly, right? Uh, how did you find them? Are they all MLS deals? Yes, they're all MLS deals at that point. Um, and they still on the South Side of Chicago, there still is an abundance. Just the last 30 days, we've really started uh, not seeing as many deals as, as uh, we used to. So yeah, mostly MLS deals at that point. Okay, okay. And auction.com and, and, and so forth. Okay. All right. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Section 8. I've worked with Section 8. I know Brandon had a little experience with it. But but let's talk about exactly what is what is Section 8 and, and how does it work? Section 8 is a program put out by HUD that is basically subsidies for low-income families. Um, there's families that work and only part of their rent is paid. And there's families that don't work at all and get 100% of their rent paid. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, how, how does it work in terms of rent? Uh, are, are you receiving, is the Section 8 rent the market rent or is Section rent set by the locality or by HUD, you know, based upon area? It is set by HUD and it does go with uh, market rents of a particular area so long as it's not a, a high, super high end area. But the rents are set by HUD and the size of the place and the amount of bedrooms and if it's a single family. You know, there, there's a pretty sophisticated formula that uh, I don't think too many people could really uh, put their thumb on how it really calculates out. But I can tell you an approximate range based on how many bedrooms what I'll get for rent. Yeah, yeah. There's generally there's a chart I, I think that you can look up online, uh, and you can actually uh, check out your. I think it. I don't know if it's state or city. I'm I, I'm forgetting now, but it would basically tell you exactly what your rents you would get on based on a three or a two bedroom or one bedroom. What I've found is then in in some areas those rents are actually uh, some they're 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 a little bit lower than market, but in some you can actually get a lot more rent through Section Eight than you could the market rents. And uh, it does tend to be attractive in those areas, I think. Yes. What are you getting? I mean, like, what do you see in your area for uh, Section 8? Do you see higher rents for Section 8, lower or about the same? In that area, yes. It is, it is uh, definitely higher. Out here in the burbs of other, thing, other uh, subsidies we manage, it, it is, it's lower or about 100 bucks lower, 10% lower pretty much. Okay. I was going to ask, when you, when you advertise a Section 8 rental, do, I mean, do you actually advertise this is a Section 8 rental? The reason why I ask is I've got a rental right now that we've been advertising for a month now and we can't get this thing rented. And it's a pretty low income. It's a basement apartment, so it's not a high class thing. Should I be putting this in my advertising that this is yes. se- Section 8? Josh Absolutely. so. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, we put that it's welcome. Um, we, okay. I, asked, I actually called the local realtor board a few months ago asking, can I put Section 8 only? And they, they said I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe so, Section 8 welcome in there. And there's, yes, a, yes. there's a website called so, uh, SocialServe. It's S-O-C-I-A-L-S-E-R-V-E, which is kind of the affordable housing listing place. Uh, so if you've got a, a property, Brandon, that would uh, be Section 8 accepted, I, you know you have to get into the program. The unit has to be inspected and all that. Uh, you you could then list it there. Cool. Yeah, yes. I, I need to probably work towards that because I don't like vacancies. I don't. I don't think I've ever had a vacancy last over a month. And this one might be over a month, so not fun. You know, I I remember one of the nice things about Section Eight was you kind of have a little bit of a leverage over your tenants uh, b- because if they screw up, then you can basically let them know that you're going to contact Section Eight. 
and uh, essentially they'll get thrown out of the program, which they do not want. Uh, have you have you had any experiences like that? Yes, um, it, it definitely gives you uh, a club to. Uh, they're not going to skip out in the middle of the night. They're not going to destroy the place. They're gonna they're gonna pay their rent. You're never gonna lose out on rent. Um, there's so many benefits in that. It's just they're part of the program. Now their voucher, the, every like their Section Eight voucher, what they ha- have is inheritable as well too. So if if mom messes up on it, she uh, she can't pass it on to daughter. If mom loses her voucher, it's inheritable for generations. Gotcha. And then the nice thing about Section Eight also is. Uh, you're getting a check directly from the government, right? I mean, so you 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 would get two checks if they had a a, a piece of the payment. Uh, the government would send you one check, one and and you'd get a second check from from them for for their share, correct? On the first of the month, I get uh, the money like clockwork deposited into our account, so that's nice. Yes, yeah, well, and then the tenant will pay the difference somewhere in the month. <laughs> Generally, nice. they're usually pretty good. Well, that's that that's where I wanted uh, to go to. I've got. I got some tenants on government programs, not Section 8, but I got some other ones. And the government will pay or whatever this organization is. Um, I don't even remember what it is, but they will pay. It's like the rent's 450 or 500. And the, the rent, the, the tenant has to pay like 50 bucks a month. It's really minor. It's like nothing. Though the tenant never pays it. I mean, like every month we have to send a, a late notice to them, a three-day notice. And then we have to like, you know, serve that. There's 35 more dollars. I mean, like it's a pain in the butt to have to get those 50 bucks from them every month. Like, how do you, how do you combat that in your business? Well, I'll tell you this. Some of the uh, CHA tenants that are, um, that you have an $800 a month payment, mm-hmm. you get that like clockwork. The one you're trying to get the 10 or $15 payment. Yep. Uh, for us, we sometimes just let it go for a couple months when it's actually worth fighting for at that point. Yeah, it's tough because most of the time they have no income and, and they really don't have anything and they might not even have that 10 or 15 bucks and how that became their portion. Um, we're not even sure how, but, yep. uh, I know that's what I'm looking. Yeah, I'm thinking, do I evict this guy over 50 bucks? I don't know. It's hard to know how far you push that. Yeah, and do you get him kicked out of the program for the 15 bucks that they're now paying you? That's. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a legitimate question, yeah. and I I know I struggled with it, and I think I I allowed I allowed for leniency for a while until other things caused uh, evictions to come up. You know, yeah. if it was you know a unit that was six seven hundred bucks and their share was fifty. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know I, I needed to collect it, but I mean, I don't work with Section 8 tenant clients anymore, but but uh, I, I certainly, you know, kind of let it slide because I knew the turnover cost would be far higher than than everything else. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough one. And, and I guess I'd be curious for anybody who's listening uh, right now. Uh, on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show72, maybe you guys can share your experiences and, and thoughts on on that exact uh, point. I'd be curious to hear it. Yeah. Oh, you know, one more one more side of the Section 8 thing. I said earlier in the show that I've had one eviction and I'm going through my second right now, but my, my only eviction I've ever done was Section 8. It was my only Section 8 tenant I'd had and uh, I did an eviction because what happened was she... Uh, her unit was like really gross, like really gross. And so like they told her she had to clean it up and she didn't. And so she got kicked off section eight. And even though like we like to say people don't want to get kicked off section eight, sometimes people that are on section eight are not, what's the word? Like, I don't know. Like they, like they don't care. Like this lady did not care because for whatever reason. So we ended up not getting rent from her then because section eight stopped paying. So I mean, there is a dark side of that is if they get kicked off the program, the tenant has no money to go anywhere you will have to evict them and you'll have to go through the whole long process to do it because she just had nowhere to go. So I don't know. That's just my sob story about my one eviction. But I don't know. Have you had that happen at all, Mark? 
No, no. Uh, we, we're actually evicting our first Section 8 tenant right now, though, but it was a little different scenario. Recently, they combined the VA, uh, the Veteran Affairs programs, with Section 8. They gave them uh, vouchers. And I have a gentleman, it's almost sad because uh, he's just, he's senile. He doesn't know what's going on and, and he doesn't belong living on his own. And uh, to get anyone to really raise any attention to anyone that we have a problem here, we did have to go through the process of uh, of filing and all that stuff. So, yeah. That was kind of the case with this lady too. I think she she should not have been living on her own. Just the condition of the house told me that she was, she was not, uh, she should have had help, but she wouldn't let anybody in. She wouldn't let anybody have help or try to help her. Yeah, it was a mess. So there are there are downsides and upsides, I guess, to both. I mean, to the program. Now, one of the positive sides, you got to let me say this one. Sure. One of the positive sides is they don't move. Yeah, I have uh, our, our vacancy is, is very low. I, we don't have in the five years, we haven't had one tenant move out after one year. So we're almost guaranteed uh, two years every time. We provide a nice house, don't get me wrong. And we respond, we have a good system of responding when when needs are happened. So it's it's part of the management too. But uh, our tenants don't move, and that that's nice, and that that makes things more consistent. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's great, and and I think we'll we'll get into management in a, in a in a few minutes. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb, and that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, I, I want to circle back. We went off on a tangent on the Section 8 just because it, it came up, but I, I want to circle back on on the deals. Uh, you had said you found them mostly through MLS, that's correct? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so you're not doing any kind of marketing or anything like that? We're not, but really what we've been talking about, me and my partners right recently, and it really prompted by uh, Bigger Pockets, is the need to really build a network of uh, wholesalers. Yeah, we've been hearing that a lot lately on... Uh, the podcast here, people who have been working with wholesalers. I've never actually bought from a wholesaler before, but now I'm thinking too. I'm like, man, I should really get like a network of wholesalers working for me. So it's kind of a cool thing, and I think I think Bigger Pockets is you know heavily driving that, uh, especially the podcast with thousands of people listening because the wholesaling shows are pretty cool. It's always like, wow, that sounds awesome. I mean, Josh, I always say that after every show, like we need to do more of that. So anyway, that's cool. So you want to do more wholesaler stuff. Uh, I guess, what what does your business look like now versus what it was? We keep talking about past, like what it was, what these properties were. Are you still are you still buying all the time or have things slowed down now? Yes, we're still buying. We're actually buying. We've kind of ramped up lately and been buying more, but we're buying in better areas as we've learned as we've learned our way around on the south side. We don't have to be in the areas that you see on the news to be paying these prices. <laughs> Yeah. So we've gone to a little more conservative areas that uh, we're still able to get uh, these these great returns. Okay, and what maybe before we go we we go on, I probably should ask this earlier. I want to talk about investing in lower income areas. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you see in those uh, rough areas? I mean, how how rough are they that you're in? I mean, are they are they ones that you would walk to by yourself, like alone, or are they you know worse than that? Are they better than that? Well, we have a we have we have a variety of them. We have a couple that we bought right in the beginning are in the worst areas ever, and you won't see me there past like nine in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I got like a window between nice. eighteen and nine o'clock in the morning. I don't want to be there the rest of the day. But uh, there's some that are there that uh, are like that, and you know the summer crime in Chicago is is pretty rough. It makes national news. So yeah, um, you have a lot of external. Um, um, problems to overcome in owning properties in these neighborhoods. Do you recommend that people like, you know, newbies get started? Like, should they look for these cheap houses in these bad neighborhoods or, uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that for new people? I would, I would definitely recommend against it, I guess, in the sense of, unless you have a partner or you have a property manager that uh, knows what they're doing to guide them along. Okay. Okay. We cool. learned on the fly and we le- we made a lot of mistakes and, and, uh, we learned a lot of things the hard way, but, uh, yeah, it definitely would not start there. Okay, cool. Well, what about financing? Uh, getting all these properties. If you're buying, you know, you're you know over a hundred properties. How are you affording all this? Well, we originally, from the get go, we had um, a third partner that put up some money, okay. and we took that money and we bought the first seven properties. Okay. And this was 2009, 
And we never thought we'd have a problem going to a bank with good credit and, and all that stuff. I mean, still just blind to how bad things really were at that point. Yeah. Our first cash out refi was, uh, I think we paid like eight or nine points, 12.9%. And I gave my future child that was, wasn't born yet up. It was horrible. <laughs> I left that uh, closing just feeling violated. It just I felt horrible that day. Um, <laughs> I've been there. But uh, about a year later, we, we it was only a one-year note. So about nine months to a year later, we ended up finding a community bank. And uh, we we started doing portfolio loans with small local community banks. And that's really the place to be for uh, investors. Yeah, that's another common theme here on the podcast. I love that. Yeah. And and so right now, most of your financing is through the community bank versus the, this this partner. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. We, you know, paid him off uh, when we first did the first cash out. Kind of kept doing going forward with. We kind of go five ten properties and uh, cash out and then do five ten more. Now we also got involved with, and this is something that I've been meaning to post on uh, Bigger Pockets in Chicago. There's a company called CIC Community Investment Corp, and they do financing for any building five units or more. And they're 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 a heck of a lot more lenient on their um, underwriting than any other bank. Interesting. Um, they're uh, they're sold. They're a non for profit that takes money from the big banks for the um, CRA money, Community Reinvest- Reinvestment Act. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but bit, uh, yeah. all these banks, Harris Chase, um, uh, Bank of America, they have to put back in loans X amount of millions of dollars a year. And instead of Bank of America lending on the South Side of Chicago, they give ten million dollars, whatever their the requirement is, to CIC which then turns around and lends it to people like us and they service it as well too. But they know what's going on in the neighborhoods. They know about these neighborhoods. So Okay. And how does somebody find a company like a CIC, well, a nonprofit like CIC? Um, well, most uh, cities do have some version of it. Um, CIC will manage anywhere in Chicago and it, or will uh, finance anywhere in Chicago. It's not just South Side of Chicago. And there's a couple in Chicago as well too. But no, my point is like if, I, if I'm looking in Albuquerque, how do I find the equivalent? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How did you end up finding these guys? Through uh, they were really they really did a lot of marketing out there at the various uh, you know there's the Chicago Apartment Association they did marketing through there and that's how we end up getting hooked up with them. Okay, so really I would just say networking, right? I mean asking other people what, how they're financing. Um, that's one of my favorite questions. Whenever I meet another investor in my area, I always ask them like, so how are you like what bank are you using or how are you financing your deals? And I, I you know find some good good community banks, good portfolio lenders that way. So. <laughs> And they'll also do construction too. So they'll oh. uh, they'll give you finance and construction. That's actually that's probably the most important part of them. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. What, what kind yeah, of down payment? Great. Yeah. What kind of down payment do you have to do on these kind of like either this company or the portfolio loans? Uh, what are you required to bring? Well, they're all different. That when we're refinancing out, they're generally between seventy and eighty percent LTV of the appraisal mm-hmm. um, value, or CIC does generally twenty percent down of the total construction uh, the project value. Okay. Okay. Cool. ARV. Oh. Well, let's let's shift gears. I know we're 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 slowly coming to the end of our show. So why don't we go to property management? Because you are, I mean, that you're doing a lot of property management, correct? Yes, yes, we are. Do you mind me asking how many properties you manage now? We manage 383 um, units. I figured this out this morning. That's why I was able to say the exact number. Nice. 383. Um, you know, whether it be single family, two flats, three flats, six flats. Um, 310 uh, association units, so we have to be managed like 10 or 12 associations, and about half a million square feet of industrial and retail space. Okay, and how many people do you have in your team there, property management team? Um, well, we have two offices and we have two operations, but uh, one for the city and one for the suburbs. But combined, we have, I think, about 18 people. 
Okay. Okay, cool. Um, do you mind me asking, because I'm kind of in that stage right now where I'm ramping up again my, my company a little bit. I mean, how do you recommend finding good people to work with? Like, I'm assuming you had to hire most of these people. Maybe you have a, you know, a, a human resource manager now, but how did you hire them and what do you look for? We were lucky in the sense of as we were a young company, we were able to latch on to some people that were just in our, our circle, our network circle, and kind of train them um, firsthand. So they, I guess, in a way, came at a good value for me because they were unexperienced and I was able to train them the way I needed to. Because what I found when the market crashed, um, a lot of people were looking for jobs, but it wasn't the good property managers that were looking for jobs. Those people didn't get let go. <laughs> yep. So uh, you know, we kind of kept in our own circles of people we knew and kind of trained in-house. Okay, cool. And I'm a pretty big fan of that is, is you know, rather than hiring somebody that's going to be the most expensive, just with any business, it's not just real estate, but hire somebody who is passionate, right? And they can do the job and train them up to be the kind of person you want them to be. I'm a, I'm a big proponent for that. So cool. Uh, why don't we go to... Uh, then managing these tenants, like you're a property manager, so we want to talk about actual dealing with tenants and some specific situations. So, uh, first of all, how are you finding your tenants? I mean, where do you, how do you market for them? Right now in the Chicago market, you know, we put them on the MLS, but you, I mean, Craigslist does amazing things uh, lately. Um, just since the market crashed, we, we find a lot of tenants on Craigslist. Nice. How then do you screen your tenants, whether you find them on Craigslist or however else you do find them? Uh, what's, what's your best method for screening? Um, it's not bad. I mean, you could usually that first phone call, uh, you could usually root them out pretty quick or that how, first text message. How do you do it? In the sense of, uh, you just ask them a bunch of questions when they're moving and, 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 you know, uh, how long they've been where they're at right now. And it all really depends on the, the conversation. <laughs> okay. You, you said a minute ago, the text message. Do you guys accept a lot of phone? I mean, like, is that just because people text cause they don't want to call or do you actually say call or text us? No, we prom- I really promote. I mean, all of our real estate signs, our big, big signs, real uh, commercial signs say text okay um, because it's kind of uh, you get back to people faster at that point. That's interesting. I've never heard that tip, but I kind of like that. Is put that on the signs themselves, uh, text okay? Because honestly, I'd rather. I mean, obviously, at some point you got to talk to them. You don't know if they're if they're normal or not. But uh, I don't know. I I think texting is kind of a neat way to to get at least some information going. Well, I, I'm I'm curious. We we kind of zoom past it, but you know what what would be the best questions that you have to screen somebody, and really, what are the answers that you're looking for in terms of, okay, this is somebody I need to pass on. Well, I guess in the in the when you take that first call for Craigslist, I, we don't screen too hard in the sense of uh, really their qualifications and all that. I really my real question is how how, how fast they're looking to move in and, and how fast we get the space filled. Our application are, are, is pretty intense, and, and the things we require them to, to show us is really that so you can take a look at that. And most of the time, if people have a bad background, they'll see what we're looking for, and they won't even submit an application. Yeah. Is there any like major red flags that, that you look at on an application and say, no, I will not rent to that tenant because of that? Just not enough money coming in, because uh, people, people just try pushing it on what they can afford, and, and you can just see that a mile away. And God forbid a car breaks down or someone gets sick and it all takes one few hundred dollar problem a month and you're in trouble then. Yeah. yeah ev- evictions, sense. of course, too. Yeah. Do you, do you rent to people with evictions? Not generally. Bankruptcies, everything else I'm open to. Um, you know, we really don't go off of credit that much. There's such a big picture in, in various people's lives that uh, we try really getting that entire picture where, you know, I really don't care if you have a 600 credit score. If you got enough money to put up and you, you pay first and last month and security deposit, and you've never been evicted. And, and I, I really don't care if, if uh, your, your credit's bad. I love people that filed bankruptcy recently because they wiped out most of their obligation. And yeah. they, now if they file bankruptcy three, to, three in the last six years, then yeah, then that's a red flag. <laughs> yep. 
That, but uh, it's an interesting point. The best tenants right now that I love are tenants coming out of a short sale um, or or even a foreclosure. They got in over their head. Their monthly expenses were three or four grand a month, and now they're coming down to a fifteen hundred uh, dollar a month rental payment. And they just want to get. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They yep. just want to get back on their feet and they can't go anywhere for another year and they won't because it's such a pain in the butt to find this place. So you got them for at least two years then too. <laughs> yep. All right. So ne- next question I got for you is let's talk about when tenants go bad. I mean, everything's great. Everyone thinks they're a good landlord when everything's good, right? It, yes. It's What do you do when tenants go bad? Uh, rent comes in late. You start seeing red flags of your tenant that you already have. What do you do? Well, the most important thing is in that scenario, and, and we've all been, every landlord's uh, let it go too far, whether it be a couple weeks or a month or, or whatnot. You just have to be ready. You have to, I'm, I'm not a big uh, landlord of delivering the five day right after uh, rent's late. I'll generally give them to the seventh or eighth. And, and I, I always tell the tenants up front, if you're not going to, if you know you're not going to pay on the 10th, let us know. Let us know. You know by the first, you're not going to pay to the 10th. So let us know. But uh, so I kind of look for uh, that that type of communication. But delivering the five day, make sure you're in, you're in, you're in line to um, start any legal proceedings um, right away is probably the most important thing. Instead of letting it go three months or taking their sad stories. Yep, that makes sense. Well, what about? I mean, here's a specific question. This I want to get actually some specifics here because I mean, this is real life stuff that landlords are facing, and, and you're a real property manager, so I think you could teach a lot of people. Let's just I'm gonna throw a few scenarios at you. Uh, totally random, like they didn't happen to me this month. So a tenant, <laughs> a nice. tenant, yeah. So a tenant calls and uh, they call on what was that? I think it was like rents due on the first, late on the fifth. Uh, they call on the fifth and say that they're not getting paid for another week because something happened. Blah blah blah. What do you do in that case? Like a week, week and a half. Uh, do you just wait and say okay, thank you, or do you file a five? I think it's five day for you. It's three day for me. But what do you do? Well, my first question always is, do you have anything? Can you give me 300 bucks? You don't, you're not going to have it all. And generally, could, we could usually get a few hundred bucks out of them, which makes it feel a little better. So I'll get a few hundred bucks out of them if that's possible, and I'll serve them a five-day right away for sure. Okay. So you'll, you'll serve prior to receiving the, the few hundred bucks, or you'll serve after receiving the few hundred? After, after. So yeah. I, what, how, would, how does the law play into that? Because you know, you're collecting um, revenues from them. So didn't they technically pay rent? They didn't pay it in full though. And you're, the five day, the five day you're going to serve is going to be for whatever the balance is after they make the payment. Gotcha. Yes, yeah, so, so you could technically serve them. I mean, if if they paid, if they owed a thousand dollars, they pay three hundred. You serve them a five day, or for me a three day on the remaining seven hundred. And then if yes. they if they pay another three hundred bucks though, you got to serve them. And is this is the case for me? If they paid an extra, let's say three hundred again, I got to reserve them another three or five with the new number. It starts the process over if I accept after serving. Is that how but it what is, is for you? And my, and my question before you answer that is what sure. what's the starting date on that? Because say you receive, you know, say he owes a thousand bucks rent, he pays you three hundred bucks. He doesn't, you know, he owes you seven. So you send. A a uh, um, a notice on on day five saying you owe seven hundred bucks, and then he pays you another two hundred in you know three days. Uh, do you have to do you reserve the five then, or do you have to wait thirty days? How does that all? Well, our attorney has advised us that as long as the amount he pays doesn't add up to what the five day is. So if you pay that two hundred dollars, that means he still has five hundred left. That five day could still be valid, but some judges in Cook County would not find that to be. Uh, um, good sports or we like you're not working with a tenant. So yeah. we always do reserve. Uh, we reserve then a, a five hundred dollar one at that point. 
Yeah. Okay. And I think it's, the bottom line, the bottom line is you want to talk to a very good qualified uh, attorney in your area who can, who uh, inform you of the local laws because all these landlord tenant laws are going to be different in, in different jurisdictions. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. even, even more than that, like a lot of things just, I mean, flat out aren't laws. Like here's a situation that happened to me in the last few days. I went and talked to my, I served a three day notice in Washington state. We have a three day notice and somebody from Washington is going to call me or and email me and tell me this is wrong, but we have a three day notice and then we have an additional 10 day notice to pay the late fee. So we, we don't put like, basically there's two forms that we serve. There's a three day and a 10 day. And if you you can't put late fees on the three day, but you can on the 10 day. It's all this like complicated stuff. So I go to my attorney and I say, you know, I served a three day and a 10 day. And he goes, why'd you do that? And I'm like, well, because the law says you have to. He's like, I don't worry about that. We never, we've never done it in the history of our, our company. He says, no judge, judges don't care. Just serve them a notice, put the whole thing on one, even though that's not technically the law. He says do it anyway because that's how it's always done. It's a technicality. I don't know. So it's, it's weird. Like, right? Like, even though something's law, it's still like subjective and there's different ways to do it that a lawyer even would tell me. So I don't know. Unless, how. unless you need a better lawyer. Unless, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I mean, like, this is like the, the major, like, the, the, he handles most of the landlords in town. And yeah. I think it's like in our local area, that's just not how it's done. It's just nobody does it that way. And even though it might be a law in Seattle or they might care up there, the judges in our area don't. And he knows that I didn't. So, I don't know. It's even the law is a little bit fuzzy. I feel like sometimes. Well, it definitely it definitely is because you know it, so much that if the tenant doesn't show up, a lot nothing ever really comes of these technicalities or or paperwork not being delivered served right. That tenant shows up, it's a whole nother ball game, and and sometimes the judge the judge is really the ruler of of all those yeah, uh, decisions. Exactly, just like you said, the judge is. Uh, like you said earlier, you might get a judge that might not like the fact that you're not doing that. So really, in the end, it just comes down to a, what a judge wants to do. And your lawyer is going to have a better idea of what a judge will or won't do because they know your judges a lot better than you do. So anyway, yeah, moving on. Yeah. Well, so I, I've got a question here on on this uh, on, on property management a little bit more here. Uh, how do I know your firm is doing uh, going to do a good job by me? You know, how do I you know how do I vet you? How do I shop and and decide, okay, well, you guys are actually good or you guys are going to burn me in some way, shape, or form. What do I need to look for to find a good property manager? Um, good questions in vetting a property manager is to request a list of properties you manage so you could drive by those physical properties and see uh, yeah. what type of shape they're really in. Um, kind of ask them what their, what their collections is at, um, their collections rate is at. Because um, that kind of, and if they don't know the answer to that, the guy you're, you're talking to, then... Uh, then uh, that's a bad, that's a red flag too. Um, Then, uh, you know, how long it takes you to rent a particular apartment or how long, how long it takes turnover and and so forth and costs for maintenance. And the, uh, really for a landlord, um, if I was looking for a property management, property management company, I would be looking for how is the property manager going to communicate with me? Am I, who am I going to communicate with? And how am I going to get my information on my money on a monthly basis? How am I going to get my money? Those are all kind of uh, important concepts. And what, okay. so, so what do you do then? I mean, if I'm looking at you and, and company B and company C, why, why would I pick you then? Um, we're going to pick us because uh, we're going to do a good job. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that you do that, that stands out uh, that, that's above and beyond what you know, anyone else does? Or, or is, it, you know, is, is this kind of a commoditized business at this point? No, I definitely don't think so because I think there's enough uh, bad property managers out there that make the the good ones look like heroes. Um, 
Right, right. No, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. I've, I've worked with some of the worst. Um, but my, my question is, you know, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, your question, the questions you asked are good. And, and we've got a couple posts on this and hopefully we can share these in the show notes, uh, questions to ask property manage some of the screening things. I'm just curious, I guess more so, you know, do you guys, for you specifically have some kind of USP unique selling point about your company that, you know, you would say, Oh, well, you know, we're better. Well, why are you better? What's better about what you guys do? Are you doing something cool that maybe other pop property managers couldn't um, do? Uh, or are you doing something that, you know, I as a landlord can bring to my property manager and say, wow, these guys are, this guy on this podcast is doing A, B, and C, and you guys need to start doing that, or I'm going to go find somebody who does. Well, no matter how much technology gets, um, which we're utilizing, we really pride ourselves on the communication. Um, we want to make sure the owner is comfortable enough that in a few months they're really letting us just run their 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 property and uh, paying them out on a monthly basis. And the level of comfort that we give a client is really what sets us apart. Okay. Okay. Cool. I have a hopefully question. Hopefully, that hopefully that wasn't too corny. <laughs> no, no, I like it. Um, and that's something that's hard to find. I mean, in my area, we don't have you know, any property manager that I trust because I don't think any of them cares about, you know, customer service or making me feel good as a, uh, as a landlord. For example, for example, my wife, is, I, I've been talking a lot to my wife lately about wanting to get property management to kind of get her out of having to do any work with the rentals anymore. Cause it's driving us a little bit nuts sometimes. So her point is this, when she drives by our rental properties, she goes and drives by them and the blinds in our apartment complex, there's a, a couple of units, the blinds are destroyed. Little kids just wreck them. They put up a Power Ranger sheet in their place, right? Like, I mean, this is a, a decent, nice neighborhood. There's a big Power Ranger sheet uh, and wrecked blinds that look like, you know, there was a mass murder that took place there. <laughs> How do I find a property manager? And is that a property manager's job even to go and make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen? Because I don't expect you to go drive around to all 300 of your properties, Um but at the same time, I don't expect my property to look like it came out of some, you know, third world country. So how do how do you reconcile those two things? Well, the aesthetics of the property is so important, and, and that's a big one. I, the blinds, especially on the south side. But uh, in the sense of, uh, y- you have to send that tenant the notice that they have to put the blinds back up that they broke, um, or they have to replace them if they're not going to in in whatever day, three to five days. We're going to come out. We're going to hang our new blinds, and we're going to charge you back. That's generally yeah. how we would handle that. Um, and and we don't use too high of high end of blinds, so it's usually a, a relatively cheap fix. But it's yeah, really give the five dollar ones from Home Depot. Yeah, you give them the chance to fix it. When when they don't within that certain period of time, which they generally don't, then you charge them back. Well, yeah. to that point, to Brandon's point though, you know, you've got I don't know. I mean, it sound, you've got hundreds of units that you take care of. It sounds like, and you know, lots of property managers do. Should I expect my property manager? to go and visit, you know, you're, you're doing a flip, right? You're going to be on the, you, you even said it earlier, you're going to be on the site every day and make sure they're doing their job. I, as a, as, as a landlord who may live a thousand miles away, or I may live up the block, I need so I need to know that somebody's going to go and, and make sure it looks okay. So is that part of the job that you go by and look at the property? Or? Yes. Yes. Okay. We tell people that we'll be at or on the property at least once a month and sometimes more it's just for maintenance reasons. But, uh, yeah. If, we're, if, if there's properties that uh, nothing's going wrong, it's just a sweet old lady, we still uh, make sure it's on our checklist to at least drive by and make sure that everything's okay. Okay, okay. cool. Yeah, You should that, expect that to answer your question. Yes, you should expect that. Got okay, it. yeah. And I, I need to like, 
And that's something I've never really asked property managers in my town. I just, I, I fear that they wouldn't. I fear that they wouldn't because they got hundreds of properties. They don't care about mine. What do they care about if there's blinds wrecked? And uh, I feel like they would just drop the ball. Nobody would do it. My property would go downhill and we'd end up, you know, having third world country apartment building. Well, here, here's what I've learned. You know, I, I think when I first started, I I was under the impression that I was getting interviewed by the property managers. And and they they do that. That's what you do. You're, hey, you know, how many... How many properties do you want to bring into our shop? You know, here's kind of our rules. Here's what we're looking to do. It's just as important, if not more, that you interview them and you tell them what you expect of them. And and I think, Brandon, this this applies for you uh, specifically as well as anyone else listening. You know, if, if they're if you expect them, if you need your properties managed and they're not doing it, then you need to go interview somebody else. Yeah. I, I think that's the end of it. And you shouldn't be afraid to fire a property manager uh, who isn't doing their job. Because frankly, the bottom line is these guys are, are, are you know, tasked with doing everything that they're tasked with doing. And if you have an expectation and don't set that expectation up front with them, hey, I want to know that this property is in good condition. I don't want to have to drive by and find out that the blinds are destroyed and you didn't do anything about it for three months. So if you're not going to do that, I'm going to find somebody who is, you know, and, and, and I think if you, if you come into the relationship and say, okay, this is what I expect from you as an owner, being informed and knowing what is to be expected of a property manager is going to put you in a, in a much stronger position. And it's going to ensure that you are actually getting a property manager who's going to do the job. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just like a hump I got to get over. And so I really enjoy talking to you know guys like you, Mark, who can kind of like reassure me that there are good property managers out there who do drive by the properties once in a while and do all that stuff. So I definitely love these podcasts when we talk to property managers. I actually need we probably should do more of these you know landlord ones. But uh, uh, before we before we go to the fire round, I want to ask you one final question, and that is completely unrelated to anything we've talked about so far. But I love this question. If you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice from like, you know, now, knowing what you know now, go back in time when you first got started, what would you tell yourself? Real estate related, I would <laughs> yeah, predict yeah. the crash. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, I, I would save more money when things were good before the market crashed to take advantage of the, the when it did crash. Okay. Uh, even more so. I think I took a pretty good advantage of it, but I, if I would have done even more, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that's actually a really good point. I mean, for other people too, like, we may or may not be going into another bubble. I mean, people think we're probably in a bubble right now in a lot of areas. Is the market going to crash again? I don't know. But if it does, it sure would be nice to have more cash so when it does crash that we can buy the cheaper properties again. I don't know. I think people could probably apply that both ways. But anyway, moving on, why don't we go to the... It's time for the fire round. All right, the fire round. All right, these questions come straight out of the Bigger Pockets forums. Josh, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Do you have any tips for beginning property managers? Yes, take classes. There's always local, uh, whether it be uh, research and classes and Bigger Pockets, learn as much as you can and listen to everybody else's mistakes. That's the number one thing. Good tip. Listen to other people's mistakes. That's very smart. All right, second one. Should I put down 20% on a property just to avoid mortgage insurance? I believe mortgage insurance comes at a small cost to have that that money liquid for something else. Okay, cool. So you you would say probably not. Probably not. If that's the only reason why you're doing it. Yes. Okay. All right, so how long does it take for you to rent an average property out? 
Well, right now in uh, the prime of this is the best part of the, the year to be renting. And if you're priced right, it shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks right now. Okay. All right, cool. And uh, my last question, how do you do your due diligence when buying a property? Um, really, the, the larger thing that I'm always worried about is um, in the city of Chicago, it, 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 they're all older buildings that we, we buy. And uh, it's really foundation uh, cracks and, and the, if the, the floors are sinking, um, those type of bigger ticket costs and roof, those are generally the bigger ticket costs. Yep. So you just look for those, make sure that they're all good enough condition? Yes, yes. Okay. All right, all right. Very cool. Well, let's finish this thing up with the world famous. Famous for. Famous for. These are the questions we ask everyone, every show. And you listen to our show, Mark, so you know what's coming. Number one. Yes. What is your favorite real estate book? The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Oh, okay. Agent by uh, Gary Keller. Yes. Cool. I've still not read that one yet. Um, I've read the investor one, but not the agent one. But I hear I need to. So it's on my list. Cool. Nice. Nice. What about your favorite business book? Favorite business book? Right now I'm reading about halfway through E-Myth, which is really helping me um, in our growth process of uh, the companies. But the another one that I've actually read the whole thing through is Best Business Advice I've Ever Received. Um, it was, uh, I think Donald Trump's name was on it, but uh, yeah. it's about 10, 10 years old. I just bought that one, actually. Oh, it goes through excerpts of all these other people that have made it big and their best advice they ever received. So it's pretty cool. Nice. Cool. Yeah, very cool. I'm actually going to be uh, taking a mini road trip tomorrow. I'm going to go visit my family over the weekend. And in the car, it's like a long drive. I'm actually going to get the, the audio book of the E-Myth because my wife's never read it. And I thought, my, okay. wife, my wife would like that book. So we're going to get the audio book and I'm going to re-listen to it this weekend. So yeah, It's listen. amazing how true it is. It is, right? <laughs> I, I remember when I read it like a year ago or a year and a half ago. I thought it was amazing. And uh, anyway, all right. So uh, we got the real estate book, got business book. Next is hobbies. What hobbies. about hobbies? What do you do for fun? Well, in football season, I like watching football, college Saturday, NFL on Sunday. What's your team? uh, Well, Bears for for, for NFL. Uh, Bears. Oh, Bears. Sorry, couldn't help it. And then I do like like, uh, Stanford for football the last few years. They've been exciting to watch for college. Cool. All right. Final question from me. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up or fail? See, I said that clearly this time, Josh, right? <laughs> All right? Well, that's why I don't take them. I just, I can't say that. Yeah, you make fun of me <laughs> for that. All right. What do you think sets them apart? Investors that are successful have failed, are prepared to fail, and don't, and get back up right away when they do fail. Um, so it's really just accepting failure. All right. I like it. I don't like failing, but I, I like your answer. Right on. Great. Right on. Cool. All right. All right. Well, listen. It, it's uh, it's definitely been great. Lots of lots of uh, good advice. Where can people find out more information about you, Mark? Well, you can find out I'm always floating around bigger pockets, and then gcrealtyinc.com is our company website. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, for anybody listening, you can also ask Mark any questions you have on the show notes at biggerpockets.com/show72. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks, guys. All right, guys, that was Mark Ainley with Show 72 of the Bigger Pockets podcast with lots of good information about property management and lots of other topics as well. Uh, hopefully, you enjoyed the show. Uh, we've got plenty more in the lineup, so uh, stay tuned for that. 
you can meet folks like Mark and all our other guests on biggerpockets.com at www.biggerpockets.com. Hopefully, if you're not already a member, you'll jump on board and get involved and start to learn from your peers. Otherwise, if you want to find out what's going on with us, always follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, G+. We share lots of content there. We actually share some stuff unique to each of these different areas. Uh, and uh, for example, if you wanted to check out the redesign of Bigger Pockets, we, we put some uh, special uh, exclusive screenshots of, of some of the new pages on our Facebook wall uh, a few days ago. So you could always check for those. That's really about it. We, we appreciate your listenership. Listenership. I can't talk today. We appreciate your listenership. And, you can't talk uh, today. You can't talk any day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. There you go. Always, always the peanut gallery. You know what, Brandon? Well, I'll just, I'll just stop and let you finish. I, I got to finish last week, two weeks in a yeah, row. Yeah, you're not going to finish this week. Not going to happen. Psych. <laughs> All right, guys. I'm Josh Dorkin signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and BAM! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.